Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. This is uh, Max. Hey, uh, sorry for the the long delay here in between episodes. Uh, shortly after I posted my last one, uh, my wife and I both came down with the Rona uh, for the second time. So we've now had Delta and Omicron. So we're just, you know, living our best life now. And uh, then after we kind of got back on our feet and caught up with life and all that kind of stuff, I had some teaching to do. And uh, then we're getting ready for baby number four and an international trip to have baby number four. And so life's just been a little bit crazy. Um, uh, but I do have a little bit of window here before we leave to record a whole bunch of episodes. So you can uh, expect them to be regular here from now until the end of this season, which will take us through um, Ezra and Nehemiah. So I just want to let you know up front uh, why the delay, and I appreciate you coming back, and uh, hopefully hopefully uh, we can continue on a good rhythm working through Ezra and Nehemiah together. And so without further ado, let's hop into Ezra and Nehemiah. All right, so let's jump back into uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, if you remember last episode in our little podcast Bible study here, we ended with Ezra chapter 3. And if you remember um, Ezra and Nehemiah as a single work, because that's really what it is, that shouldn't really be considered two separate books. It's one, one uh, literary work. And uh, there's three major sections in Ezra and Nehemiah together. There's uh, Ezra 1 through Nehemiah 7, and that itself has kind of three movements in it, and that's what we're working through right now. And then you have Ezra 8 through, excuse me, through 12, or towards the end of 12. And then you have the very last section of 12 through chapter 13 uh, in Nehemiah is the final is the final section. And so today we're going to finish Ezra 4, uh, four 5, and 6, which completes the first kind of subsection here. Um, Ezra 1 through uh, Nehemiah 7 is all about kind of three phases of rebuilding and, well, returning from exile, rebuilding, uh, and restoring. Those three R's, if you remember, uh, returning, rebuilding, and restoring. And they begin, Ezra 1 through 6, with rebuilding the temple. And then 7 through 10, which we'll do in the next episode, is about Torah observance. And then Nehemiah 1 through 7 is about rebuilding the wall. And so uh, Ezra 1 through 6 uh, begins our story of the exiles coming back from Babylon. And if you remember, we, we highlighted, and I spent a good amount of time in our first two episodes... Um, highlighting the very beginning of Ezra 1, uh, where the, the writer quotes the prophet Jeremiah that this is what Jeremiah had spoken and prophesied, and how that kind of prophetic package and all of the things that come in with that, that he doesn't just mean Jeremiah's prophecy about 70 years and then they'll return, because if we go back and actually read Jeremiah and then Isaiah and Ezekiel, and um, even back into, um, 
even further back in, into Moses, the, the links there, what we're seeing here is that there's a, a long prophetic history of God's people expecting to come out of exile with their sins forgiven, the Messiah come, the nations coming to Jerusalem, God's kingdom being set up on the earth, all of these things um, that are, are connected to that little phrase at the beginning of Ezra chapter 1, where this is that which Jeremiah said would happen. And, and so they begin uh, this kind of first little subsection, Ezra 1 through 6, is about them rebuilding the temple, because central to that prophetic package of hope and promise and expectation is uh, that God would be worshipped in his temple again, and that the nations would flow to the temple. I'm, I'm thinking just right now, even off the top of my head, of the great prophecies of Isaiah, of the nations coming to the mountain of the Lord, coming to the temple of the Lord, and hearing the word of the Lord, and the word of the Lord going out to all of the nations and them serving him, and his rule and his reign going out from Mount Zion. And you can even think of all the Psalms that um, exalt and, and uh, exalt Jerusalem and the Temple Mount and look forward to that day as well, where the, the Messiah's reign, uh, God's reign would go out from Zion, from the Temple. Uh, we get even a glimpse of that at the end of Ezekiel, of this renewed and glorified Temple, and where the, the life of God is going out and healing the nations, and all of this is, is connected. And that's one of the things I want to take away here from our Bible study uh, as we're looking through Ezra Nehemiah as kind of a, a test case here to, to gain some, some more skills, is paying attention to those small phrases and taking the time to actually go back on those hyperlinks, right? The, to, to read them and actually start making those connections. And it takes a little bit more time and it takes a little bit more work, but that's, that's where we see, that's where the meaning often lies. That's where the power often lies. That's where the, the depth often lies. And the, the biblical writers are constantly using those hyperlinks to take us back to different places, to tie us in, and they expect us as readers to know those parts of the story. And so when they say, uh, this is that which the, you know, the prophet Jeremiah spoke of, they expect us to know what the prophet Jeremiah spoke of. And the you know, if we're just honest, most of us have just not spent a ton of time in Jeremiah, and so we don't know what the prophet Jeremiah spoke of other than the 70 years, right? But there's so, so much more to that. And so uh, Ezra 1 through 6 is about them rebuilding the temple and them um, uh, kind of beginning the, the, the rebuilding process of the people of Israel, uh, beginning with the worship and the liturgy and the temple, uh, so that the nations could could come there. Right. That's the we got to keep that prophetic. And why I just recapped it. We got to keep that prophetic expectation uh, in the background of everything that we're reading, because that is the current that is driving this story. That's the wind in the sails of this story. Is that prophetic ex- expectation? And unless we keep that wind in our sails, when we get to the anticlimaxes, if you remember from last time, uh, they, they lose some of their power, right? Um, and we, we, we miss out on the tension 
that the authors are meant for us to wrestle with of what this story is actually about. Okay, so with that, Ezra chapter 4 begins our story, and this is going to be repeated as everything is in Ezra Nehemiah. It's really a book of of cycles, uh, is we get this phrase, uh, the adversaries of Judah, right? Even though they haven't, haven't done anything yet, but they come, these adversaries, they come to oppose uh, the building of the temple. They've heard that the temple is going to be rebuilt, and they come to uh, oppose it. Now, we don't know exactly who these adversaries are at this point, because they haven't been named. Uh, they haven't even done anything yet, uh, but they're called adversaries. And most theologians believe um, that these adversaries were the descendants of those uh, peoples, other peoples, that the Assyrians planted in the area after um, their destruction of the northern kingdom and Samaria in the year 722. So Assyria's uh, kind of go-to move is they would, instead of taking everybody back as slaves, they would just actually move people around and kind of mix cultures to try and dilute the cultures uh, so that nobody was strong enough in one location to uh, challenge them and to try and you know, raise up a, a revolt. And so there were people who got resettled in the land of Israel, in the northern kingdom uh, in uh, the 700s, in the 8th century, when they came in. And so more than likely these are, because later these people are going to be called the people of the land, and we've seen that phrase again. So they, they lived there. So most likely these are people who were re, relocated by the Assyrians and, uh, you know, lived in the northern kingdom and in in Samaria, right? Um, so Zerubbabel and the heads of the of the fathers, they um, when when the the adversaries come, they uh, they come to Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers, and they say, "Hey, we want to help you build this temple. Uh, in fact, we worship the same God, and we have been worshiping Him." And so, again, more than likely, these are people who are relocated and took on some of the religious practice of the Israelites, and weaving. If you really fast forward, you get the scene of the woman at the well in John 4 in Samaria, this same geographic location. And she says, hey, we've worshipped Yahweh here for a really long time uh, on Mount Perizim, on this other other mountain. And uh, and more than likely, she is a descendant of these, these same people. And this is why the Samaritans were considered half-breeds, because of the mixing from from the Assyrians, right? So that's, with this story, we can trace all the way there, and actually uh, reading John 4 in light of this story and what Jesus is doing, and even the rebuilding of the temple, right? Because they start talking about worshiping on the temple, in, and in the temple, and on the mountain in John 4, all of that has its roots even here, when uh, these people are coming to ask to rebuild the temple with Ezra or with uh, Zerubbabel, excuse me, in in Ezra. Um, So this is interesting because they come and they ask to to rebuild, and um, Zerubbabel rejects their their request and says, no, 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 we're we're going to do this uh, just as Cyrus commanded us to, to do it alone. And the reason this is interesting is, again, 
with we keeping that prophetic kind of cluster, that prophetic package, that prophetic wind in our sails, one of the hallmarks of all of that is that this would be a global, nationwide, Gentile movement, that the nations would be the ones that would come and worship at the temple. And so now here you have foreigners, non-Jewish people, asking to come and build the temple. And so what are what is Zerubbabel meant to do? Um, we have these competing... Really, there's I don't know a different way to put it. These competing verses in the scripture where we're, they're told over and over in in the Torah to not mix with the people of the land and to not you know join themselves to foreigners in any way. And that theme is also going to come back around in this book uh, when we talk about marriage and uh, in just a few chapters. Uh, but also, so we have these passages of exclusion, but then we have all these passages of prophetic inclusion. And so what are they to do? Um, there's one in particular, one passage in particular that is important because it's spoken of by the prophet Zechariah, who's going to get mentioned for the first time here just in the very next chapter, in chapter 5. Um, and so he's a contemporary of these day of this this time. And was is speaking to the generation that came back from exile to rebuild the temple, and so this is what he says. Uh, this is Zechariah two. Uh, he says, "Up, up, and flee from the land of the north." That's from Babylon, says the Lord. For I've spread you abroad like the four winds of heaven, says the Lord. Up, Zion, escape you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. So he's he's talking about the exile or. or Coming back, I should say, the return from the exile. For thus says the Lord of hosts, He sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For surely I will shake my hand against them, and I will become, uh, and they shall become spoil for their servants. You remember how in the very beginning of Ezra 1, they took back all the gold and all these things, and that was an echo of the Exodus, right? And this is, again, kind of echoey, echoing the Exodus language of coming back up out of, out of exile, right? Uh, then you will know uh, that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, and here's the, the key phrase, for behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord, and many nations will be joined to the Lord in that day, and they will become my people, and I will dwell in your midst. Obviously talking about the temple. And I will again choose Jerusalem and be aroused from my holy habitation. So here's Zechariah the prophet saying, the day is coming when they're going to leave the north, they're going to leave Babylon. That's obviously already happened. And so he's kind of reflecting on that. But then he says that day will be marked by a few things. One, God is going to come back to his temple and dwell in their midst. That's to, Whenever it says to dwell in your midst, that's tabernacle temple language, because that is the dwelling place of God. That is the what he calls later the, the holy habitation of God, and he mentions Jerusalem later. So 
we have these this promise of dwelling, but then along with that promise of dwelling is that many nations will be joined to the Lord in that day. And so what are we to do? This is a, a great, I think, moment of meditation for us in our, our times of, of studying the Scriptures. The, the, the Scriptures often, often do not present us with a straight way forward, do not present us with a single answer to every problem. In fact, what they more than often do is put a dilemma in front of us and invite us into meditation, invite us into pondering, invite us into dialogue with the Spirit, dialogue with the Lord, and and cause us to lean into the Spirit and what the Spirit is leading us to do in that moment with what the Scriptures say. But there is not, a lot of times there is not a straight answer forward. And we're going to see this kind of thing happen over and over and over again. I pause there just to point out the fact that this, this is the way that the Scriptures work. And so what we can't we can't get away from that tension. We need to recognize that that tension is there, that there are these competing texts. And here in this story, Zerubbabel is going to reject the offer of the people. And if we just take at face value his rejection of the offer of the people and what Zechariah says will happen, you know, it at least invites the conversation of, you know, is he listening to the prophet? Should he have, you know, welcomed welcomed their help? Is the prophet in talking about something else? And I don't know all of the answers to those questions, but in our own life, that's t- very often how it is. Is we we don't have the straight, clear path forward all of the time. It would be great if we did, but we just don't. And so we need wisdom. And we need to do our best to apply what the Spirit is leading us to do and what the Scriptures are leading us to do and what the Church is calling us to do and, and leaning into those things as best that we, and best that we can. And so uh, this does not sit well with those who uh, wanted to help, and they begin to hire counselors, and they begin to try and frustrate the work, and uh, they begin to do all of these things. And the rest of chapter 4 is uh, verses really 6 through 23 are kind of a parenthetical notation. And uh, they, we jump out of the chronological story, and we get three letters. Well, we get three instances. Um, not all of them have a, have a letter. But we get three instances of future opposition on the governmental level. Uh, verse 6 mentions the reign of Ahasuerus. Hope I'm saying that right. Probably not. Right? When they wrote of the accusations against the people of Jerusalem and the inhabitants of Judah. Chapter 7 mentions in the days of Artaxerxes. And then we get chapters 8, or, uh, verse, excuse me, uh, verse 8 through 23, which gives us a different letter. So we get three different instances of kind of governmental opposition from completely different 
time periods. Again, the, the author has, an editor more than likely here, has just inserted these to show at the, you know, by the end that, 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 that this thing is being written, you know, over 100 years later, that this opposition lasted for a long time. This was not a one-time thing that they overcame, that this was a, a long a long thing that uh, that they had to endure. And that's really the, the rest of, of chapter four is that observation. And we hop back in to the actual narrative then uh, down in verse 24, and that it just notes that the the opposition was successful and that the, the work of the Lord stopped. Now again, if we just read that against the, the prophecies of Zechariah and Jeremiah and all these people, was it necessary for the work to stop? I think there's one way to read it that says, well, look, they said no, and then all of these you know, people, they started hiring counselors and frustrating them and doing all these things to get them to stop. They're probably not great people. There's another way to read it, maybe, that says, well, they probably should have just said yes, and then they would have had no reason to do those things. And maybe the work of the Lord would have never stopped at all, and they would have been able to build the temple and actually uh, bring the nations into you know, covenant with Yahweh. Again, I don't know maybe what the correct way to read that is, uh, but I think there's there's something interesting there for us to ponder about how our choices have consequences and how there always isn't a clear way forward, and yet, and yet how even in the end, even if that is the they made the wrong choice, even if we want to say and are convinced that Zerubbabel made the wrong choice, even in the end, God's ways prevail. That our word matters, but our word is penultimate in some sense. It is not ultimate. Christ's word and Christ's plans cannot be frustrated. And so that brings us into uh, chapters 5 and 6, where that opposition is, uh, is overcome. And so we, we are now introduced to Haggai and Zechariah. Uh, they're described as being prophets. Their spirits are also described as being stirred by God. Remember, that's been a repeated phrase, and you could just go through the book and trace the people who have been stirred. Um, and uh, we see that as a repeated theme of God moving on the hearts of people in order to to do things. Um, both, uh, and we also get this phrase um, that the eye of God was upon them. And both these phrases are uh, great examples of how biblical repetition works. So in one phrase, it's their spirit is stirred. In the other phrase, it's the eye of God was upon them. And they mean really the same thing. And it's just a, a, a way to highlight what God is doing slightly differently. And so biblical repetition is not always the exact same word or the exact same phrase. It can be slightly different phrases with pretty clearly the same meaning that are in when we pause to think about the difference between them, uh, maybe more meaning is brought out in in the difference. So we can think about how God's eye and His attention is on us, and how, what that maybe feels slightly differently than talking about His hand reaching in and stirring us, or His Spirit stirring us. It just the images are just slightly different, and they they open up more possibility for us to meditate on what it means for God to be 
uh, involved and active in overseeing uh, his plans uh, and his purposes uh, in in the earth. Um, verse 6 and onward, we get really kind of the story retold in the form of a letter um, being written back to a new king now, Darius. So again, we're jumping all over time. The the However, this was originally wrote and, uh, written, and then the later editors, uh, they, they play with time and jump all, all over, and that's, we're not used to that, but that just is uh, what it is. But we get this really key phrase in verse 12, when the, uh, the author is reflecting back on why the people went into exile in the beginning, and it says that the exile happened because our fathers angered God. And as a result, it says he gave them over to Nebuchadnezzar. And I think this is a, a an incredible moment for us to pause and reflect briefly on what the wrath of God means, what the judgment of God means, that God is his wrath, and, and Paul says this explicitly in Romans, is the giving over of humans to their own sinful wills and desires, and that the wages of those sin, he says, is is death. And so it's the God's wrath is not him killing and slaughtering and uh, raising up armies to kill a whole bunch of people. It's simply God giving over humans to what it is that humans desire in their hearts apart from him, and what we always reach to take apart from him. It's if we think back to the Cain story, when God comes to warn Cain that sin is crouching at your door, and it wants to consume you, and, and Cain chooses to allow that thing to swallow him, to devour him, to eat him, and he kills his brother. And God's wrath is simply when he, in a sense, doesn't come to the door anymore, and says, if this is what you want, and if this is the door that you are going to walk through, then I will let you walk through it and bear the consequences of it. Because, listen, Jesus doesn't need to inflict punishment upon us for our sin. Sin bears its own punishment. Sin bears its own consequences. It's called death. And so he doesn't need to come and kill us. That's what sin does. Sin kills us. So um, we, we, we get this little phrase that actually is a really profound theological reflection on how they understood the exile, that the exile was not God, even though this language gets used, it was not God actively raising up these wicked people, you know, like a stick in order to come and beat his people with his hand. It was him just not knocking at their door anymore, and allowing them to be turned over into a, into the wicked world, into the hands of sinful people. And um, that's what the wrath of God is. And it also is a wonderful reflection on his mercy, because then in the midst of that, he speaks uh, all of those passages of hope that we looked at in Jeremiah 30 through 33, the book of Consolation. That's in the middle of all of that, because his mercy always ends up triumphing uh, over, over judgment. And so we get um, the, 
the opposition eventually is is overcome, and uh, the letter comes back, and and the king just says, uh, all that I ask for them to do is just to pray for me. And um, we get then the dedication of the temple uh, once that opposition is is overcome. And uh, Ezra 5, 16 through 22, completes the kind of um, the opening section as the returnees celebrate and dedicate the temple of the Lord. And this dedication service shares some key similarities, but also some key differences with the dedication of the first temple under Solomon. And that would be a great thing to to go and just read both of those side by side. Um, first, like the dedication, like the dedication of Solomon, um, this uh, dedication, the the foundation was laid at the end of chapter three. Remember, and joy is the featured emotion. Uh, and this time, uh, there is joy, but no weeping. You remember that at the end of three, there was weeping and joy, and now at the completion of the temple, it, it is only joy. So we get this, we're getting this growing sense of God's fulfillment, uh, and that shares um, similarities to Solomon's dedication. Um, second, uh, the dedications coincided with the celebration of a feast, this one with Passover, uh, and again, that is the sign of a second exodus, right? So we we traced that second exodus theme uh, earlier in, I think it was episode one and two. And lo and behold, when they come to dedicate the temple, what feast do they do it on? But they do it on Passover, right? Because this is a second exodus. And this temple is the new tabernacle by which God is coming to dwell in the midst of his people. And we're going to see later Ezra going up on a high place and receiving the law like a new Moses, right? Uh, coming down from the mountain and speaking God's law to his people. And this is all second Exodus kind of stuff. Uh, the, the key difference here is a glaring one, and that there's no mention of God's glory filling this temple. Now, we read about God's glory departing the first temple in Ezekiel, uh, I believe it's 9, 9 and 10, off the top of my head. And we have no record of it coming back uh, in, in this temple. And so when Moses and Solomon dedicate the tabernacle and temple, both are accompanied by clear manifestations of God's glory in all the sight of the people. But there's nothing like that, nothing like that here. And so that is a key, if we pause, just think about that against the backdrop of the prophetic picture. That should give us right away a little, as readers, as careful, attentive readers, a little pause to say, okay, what is going on here? If this is the fulfillment of that which Jeremiah spoke of, if this is really that, then why is God's glory not filling this temple so that the nations can come to it and worship and join him and become part of his family? Something is amiss here. Something is off here, right? And these stories here, uh, where we are now, are, I think, we can put them right up against when Jesus comes into his temple, both as a child for the first time, and he's dedicated, right? So here we have the dedication of the temple. In Luke 2, we have the dedication of Christ, the new temple, the true temple, 
in the temple. And that is the first time, in a sense, God is coming back into his temple is in Luke chapter 2. And we can read those these two stories, I think, right next to each other and draw some, I think, wonderful uh, con- I, reflections, I guess you would say, or uh, some wonderful points of connection of Jesus being the fulfillment of uh, Jeremiah's word, of the prophet's word, and even that this scene here is actually just another stepping stone. It's another picture. It's another allusion to the reality that will come, and that is Christ who comes to his temple, and the words of the prophets are quoted, that he is the one that would be a light to the nations. He is the one that would be the salvation of Israel, the consolation of Israel, the Messiah that would save his people from their sins, uh, all of these kinds of things. And then you can even think about all of the times that Jesus comes back to the temple during the feasts, during Passover, uh, and you could even read some of those against this as well. And so um, that takes us through Ezra 1 through 6, and so that is... Uh, the story of them rebuilding the temple. And uh, in the next episode, we're going to do Ezra 7 through 10 all together. That is going to be the the second movement uh, here in the first phase and where they're going to uh, rebuild some Torah observance in a sense. And so we're going to be introduced to the law. We're going to be introduced to Ezra, uh, the person in this uh, section. And so I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. And uh, like always, the notes are linked in the description below, as is a link to my Substack page. If you want some more theological reflections from me uh, and scriptural reflections from me, you can read some things that I've written, and all of that is linked in the description below. And uh, with that, thank you so much for stopping by, and we'll see you next time.